The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. We'll turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and as you're doing so, let me give you a little bit of a a heads up on what's going to be happening on the coming Sunday nights. We're going to finish up Deuteronomy chapter 6. We have tonight and two more sermons to finish this chapter, and then we're going to take a break from Deuteronomy on purpose and study some issues of church life and ecclesiology. And the reason is in talking to the staff and in bouncing some things off of uh, some friends, some elders, I think that Really, our time would be so well spent in looking at these issues of ecclesiology right now and coming back sometime in the future and picking up our study in Deuteronomy. But I'm so compelled by church life and the way we're doing it and the things that we want to keep building on and pressing toward and also some things we want to make some adjustments on that I'm very excited for us to kind of turn our attention to ecclesiology and the study of the church. But... Uh, at hand is the study of Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy is, as you know, Moses' sermons. It's a series of sermons he gave just across the Jordan River because he was speaking to the new generation because their parents had died by necessity, right? They had to die in the wilderness, and it's a new generation who were going in to inhabit the land. And Deuteronomy is his preparation for them. Now, it's not only preparation... It serves as two things. It looks back and it looks forward. It's the second law. It doesn't mean he gave the law a second time as much as it means he gave the law with homiletical and theological interpretation and application. Many of the things that are reiterated in the law in Deuteronomy the second time are given not just in repetitious form, but they're given with theological writers with theological explanations and with a lot of application woven in so that this new and younger generation would know exactly what it meant to them, exactly how they were to apply it as they went in and conquered and inhabited the promised land. We come now to verse 10 in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So much has preceded this uh, verse. We, we've talked about the uniqueness of God, the oneness of God, the, the principle of discipleship that's supposed to take place within the family, that it's God's design that families are the primary input, guide, and accountability for spiritual truth, even secondary to the religious community, which would have been Israel in those days and the church in ours. Having said that, we also know that in our day, not everyone grows up in a Christian family, and so the church oftentimes provides the, the sustenance for someone who had no spiritual context when they were growing up. It still gives us a, a pointed uh, finger of application, those of us who are fathers, in being specific and teaching our kids what they are to know so they know what they're to do, and primarily they know why they're to do it. Now we come to chapter 6, verse 10, which has a very interesting accent. I've entitled this tonight, Avoiding the Trap of Spiritual Amnesia. Moses was very familiar with the notion and the idea of spiritual amnesia. In other words, forgetting what God had taught, forgetting who God is. Why was he so familiar with this? The previous generation who had now died in the wilderness... 
were largely in their graves and primarily not able to cross the Jordan River because of their spiritual amnesia. They had forgotten who God was and what God had done and lent themselves to their own understanding, their own wisdom, their own spiritual insight and intuition. And it had been a failure to them. Come now to verse 10. Moses says this. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all goods which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, Vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. And you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. No discerning evangelical today would question the fact that the church in our generation suffers from a debilitating case of spiritual anemia. The church in most quarters of the world is largely unhealthy on a macro level. And the primary condition of this anemia, if we can call it that, concerns itself with blood cells deficient of hemoglobin in the illustration. That's what anemia is. This absence causes poor health in an individual physically and leaves left untreated can cause weakness and ultimately death. But the secondary uh, definition of this anemia reads this, a lack of vitality or courage. It's a great illustration. Physical anemia can have emotional or as we're calling it, spiritual anemia where you're not healthy. Church does indeed find herself unhealthy in many quarters of the world. All you need to do is drive around Kansas City and look at the number of churches. Think if all those churches were working together for the spread of the gospel and the purity of doctrine, what kind of city this would be. Our evangelical church, though, has become the stuff of ridicule, being a novelty in the world. No longer are we the nation's conscience as we once were. Instead, we're passed off as an echo of a past time of idealism long abandoned. I heard recently on a pundit's um, a show on uh, Fox News how no one believes that the Bible should be taken literally anymore. And I wanted to say, actually, don't say no one believes that. I know a whole church full of people who believe that. Welcome to postmodernism. Where religion is pluralistic, truth is largely subjective, morality is relative, authority is suspect, and the power of media and consensus reigns, not God and His Word. Why? Why is a church full of spiritual anemia? I think largely it's due to the case of spiritual amnesia, the same issue that Moses is addressing here in Deuteronomy 6. The problem isn't new. It goes all the way back to Moses. 
Moses is saying, if you forget what God has done in the past, you are likely to not respond rightly to God in the present, and certainly those who follow you in the future will not have a spiritual compass. So as we look at this, I want to break, the, break it down really simply tonight and just see two solutions for spiritual amnesia. That's what Moses is teaching on. Two solutions for spiritual amnesia. All of us, then and now, all of us in the covenant community of God, whether it be Israel in the Old Testament or the church in the New Testament, struggle with spiritual amnesia. Forgetting what God's done in the past and acting as if we don't remember it. Moses addresses that and he gives us solutions for it. Now, this is a really interesting context because he says, remember what God has done in the past. Now, think about who he's talking to. He's talking to the children of parents who left Egypt. Said another way, he's talking to children who had not seen what God had done in the past. They had seen the conquest that Moses had led them through, Deuteronomy 4 Chronicles that. But largely, they had not seen the exodus They'd not seen those miracles in Egypt. They had just heard about it. That's that's an important issue. God calls us to remember spiritual realities and spiritual truths that we personally weren't there to see or experience. It's the case with the whole Bible for us, isn't it? None of us were there. None of us saw Jesus rise from the dead. None of us saw Peter walk on the water. Yet we're called to believe in realities we did not see nor did we experience. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight. We didn't see it. So as he calls this generation to remember what God has done, don't be confused that he's calling them to remember walking on that dry ground through the Red Sea. Their parents did. They didn't. Great parallel to us. The first solution then, breaking this passage down for curing spiritual amnesia is this. Recognize the trap. Recognize the trap for spiritual amnesia. It laid before the people uh, crossing the Jordan. It lays before you and me as well. Verse 10. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Stop right there. This is an ancient promise. This is an ancient promise. He looked at Abraham and said, see the boundaries of this land that I'm marking out? This will be yours and your descendants forever. And yet, for generation, for 400 years, one family of 70 disappears in from that land, goes down to Egypt. God multiplies them to multiple millions of people. And now they've moved out of Egypt back toward the promised land. God was faithful to keep the futuristic application of that promise even though there was a temporary absence of its fulfillment. That's an important principle because we're in such a state right now. God has promised one day to fulfill his promise to Abraham and his descendants that they would inherit the land. But this time, if you read Ezekiel and Jeremiah, if you read Zechariah, if you read Jeremiah and and Isaiah, you see that this would one day be ultimately fulfilled when their Messiah, when their Savior sits on the throne in Jerusalem from the temple, literally on that place, 
and rules and reigns. Now, that hasn't happened in history. Jesus, the Messiah, walked in that temple. Remember, Haggai says, very interestingly, the, the second temple, which would have been Zerubbabel re, renewed by, by Herod, that second temple, which was just a, a shoddy remnant uh, physically of Solomon's temple, which was the most splendorous, uh, majestic, richest edifice ever created by man, ever built by man. He says that second temple will be better than the first. And the reason is the Messiah would actually stand in that temple. That would be the temple he would be condemned in. That would be the temple that he would probably look at, if you can think about this, in the geography of Jerusalem. He would have seen from the cross, he could have seen the temple hanging on the cross. That would be the temple where the veil would be rent torn from top to bottom, and salvation would be accomplished, and man would be invited through faith in God's Son into the holiest of holies and a relationship with God. One day that will happen. And let me just say again, at Mission Road Bible Church, we are very dogmatic, can I use the forbidden word, that in the future, Jesus will return and call his people, the Jews, to himself. They will look on the one they have pierced and mourn. And there will be a time of the restoration of the nation of Israel. So we shouldn't be surprised if there's a pause in that right now. There was a pause back here as well for 400 years in Egypt. God says, I promise that one day this will happen. And we should cling to and believe that promise. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, obviously Jacob, obviously the forefathers, the patriarchs that he calls in for credibility. Then he says, to give you, now this is interesting. This is a part of the promise that has never been revealed until now. Great and splendid cities, which you did not build. Children of Israel are going to walk into these cities Conquer the people, rule the land without destroying all the architecture. God says you are going to have what we call today turnkey houses to live in, cities to have. He goes on, houses full of goods, good things, which you didn't feel, hewn cisterns, which you did not dig. Having a cistern was a very priceless thing in the ancient Near East. A cistern was, was uh, uh, dug out of limestone so that it wouldn't leak. It was, a, it was a portable well. Instead of having a well where it was naturally fed by springs, you would have uh, workers who would transport water from a live spring and well over to a, uh, a, basically an underground cavern in a cistern, which was cool and would keep the water from going bad. And you would have your own private well, your own private cistern. It goes beyond that. It says vineyards, olive trees, which you did not plant you're going to have a turnkey situation. Now, my wife and I have bought three houses in our marriage. Um, the last one we bought was exactly that. It was turnkey. We didn't need to paint anything. We didn't need to build anything. It's very good for me. If you've seen me with power tools, you would affirm this is a very good thing. In the house before this in California, it was pretty much turnkey. We had to do some painting and some things. And I... I hung a mirror. It was a big mirror. It was a heavy mirror. It was a mirror that required finding studs and drilling in and wing bolts and all sorts of stuff. And 
When we moved, when we took that mirror down, there were, count them, eight unused holes in the wall. Those were failures on my attempt to hang that mirror. If you go back to our first house, though, we, uh, we bought this house and needed a little work. It had, first of all, some wallpaper in it that was pre-my grandmother, if, you, if that makes sense. They were, they were flowers and color schemes that were, um, how do we say this, gross, horrific, embarrassing. And so we decided that we would remove the wallpaper and paint this room. Now, I was thinking that this would take a day and a half or so. Now, there's two kinds of wallpaper. Well, let me say this. There's two kinds of glue that wallpaper is attached to the wall. There's what we call the godly kind. And the godly kind of wallpaper can be removed by a simple steam or a simple... You put this chemical on it and you peel it off. It's beautiful. I've seen it done. It's a wonderful thing. I've watched YouTube videos on it. What a magical thing that is. And then there's this other demonic wallpaper glue, which the people before us had used. This kind of wallpaper is like nuclear gorilla glue. Um, And uh, we tried steaming, and we ended up having to get steamers and steam like every square inch. And this was a vaulted ceiling, and they had this thing going from the top. At the end of that, we we did that. We sanded it off. we, We painted the room. I looked at my wife, and I said... There are reasons that painters have businesses. There are reasons you pay people to do this. And every room in the history of my life from now moving forward will be painted by someone who knows what they're doing. And wallpaper will be removed by people who have been bad their whole lives and need to be punished by the removal of this wallpaper. Now, it's kind of a silly illustration, but I know what it's like to walk into a house when you don't have to do anything to, and to walk into a situation that takes a lot of work. Israel was promised a turnkey situation. You're going to walk in. You're going to have a food source that you didn't plant. You're going to have houses you didn't build, cities and streets and infrastructure that you didn't create. This is a new part of the promise, God says. People are going to create a situation for you that's easy, that's turnkey, that they didn't know that they were doing, that's a part of my fulfillment. This is a new insight on the promise of God previously unknown. And I love the last phrase. And you eat and are satisfied. Deuteronomy 8.10 says, When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Deuteronomy 11.15, He will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Not only was the infrastructure already built for cities and for houses, it was also built for livestock and for trade and for commerce. So even though Israel would have to fight and battle to conquer the promised land due to the fact that it was inhabited, it was still a turnkey complete with cities, houses, fields, vineyards, ready for them to take over as their own. But here's the deal. That was the danger. The fact that they were so blessed, it was easy to enjoy the blessings and forget the blesser. This is great. We didn't have to work for this. This is fantastic. The book of Ecclesiastes says, you know, there, 
here's the gross reality of life. A man works his whole life, amasses wealth, gives it to his sons and grandsons, and they blow it because they didn't work for it. Happened here. Joshua 24, 13, looking back on this, Joshua says, quoting God, I gave you a land which you had not labored, cities which you had not built, you have not lived in. You are eating vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. He's indicting the people for wickedness against God in the shadow of the blessings that God had given them. Now just pull a car over for application for a minute. How easy is it for us to enjoy unspoken spiritual, physical, emotional, friendship blessings without saying thank you to the one who gave them to us? Spurgeon says this, adversity, I love this, adversity has slain its thousands, but prosperity has slain its tens of thousands. He's right. They were given all these blessings, and if you read into Joshua, wow, and if you read into Judges, what do you find? The cycle went down further and further away from the God. Basically, they said, thank you for the blessing God had turned their back away from God. We'll take the blessings. We just won't, don't want the giver of the blessings. Why? Because then we're accountable to the one who gave us these blessings. Prosperity, my friends, is a far worse enemy than adversity. Because more in prosperity are we tempted to forget the giver of the gift. However, in adversity... We're looking for the grace of God. So, first thing we do to solve our spiritual amnesia is recognize the trap. What's the trap? Having, being given blessings, some that we didn't even work for or or, or work towards, and not looking to the one who gave them. Secondly, remember God and his goodness. That's a, a simple remedy, but it has a New Testament parallel we'll look at in a minute. Remember God and his goodness. Verse 12. Do you underline things in your Bible? Here's a phrase. Then, in the midst of enjoying God's blessings, in a prosperous situation, then watch what? Yourself. Be clever and clear to watch over your life. What does that mean, watch over my life? He tells us now, he expands on it. That... Watch yourself so that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. What is he saying? Be careful to give attention to your heart and soul. Watch over your life. Watch over your soul so that, here it is, you do not forget. Forget what? If you look at the verse carefully, Who God is and what God's done. It's very simple. Who God is and what God has done. Without careful attention, we will forget who God is, what he's like, and we'll forget what he's done in his abundant blessings. Now, can we just take a quick tour? Go back to chapter 4, verse 9. I want to show you how important this concept is to Moses. Chapter 4, verse 9. Give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not, what? Forget 
the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Be careful that you don't forget. Look down at verse 23. So watch yourselves that you do not forget. Is this sounding like a pattern? Watch yourself. Be careful that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. Be careful or you're not going to be a rememberer. Said another way, be careful or you will forget. Look at verse 31. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you nor forget. Now we find something out about God. God won't forget the covenant with your fathers which he swore to them. Most of these contexts where God says do not forget and watch yourself are in the context of remembering God's covenant promise, his giving of salvation. Look over at chapter 8, verse 11. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Now we find out a different layer and level. That forgetting the Lord is not so much a mental thing, it's a moral thing. Aaron said it this morning, looking back at last week. Our lives reflect what we believe theologically. Our theology should direct how we live our lives. What he's saying here is, if you forget God, who he is and what he's done, that will show up by not obeying God, by disobedience. Look at verse 14 of chapter 8. Then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You'll become proud. You'll become boastful about who you are, what you can do, what you have, and you will forget the Lord your God. Not forgetting is a clear emphasis. Look down at verse 19. It shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you will surely perish. We go on and on throughout the rest of Deuteronomy. Do not forget. Do not forget. Be careful that you don't forget. Watch yourself so you don't forget. So it's very simple. It's not a complicated passage. He's saying, the problem that you are going to be tempted by, sons of Israel, is when you get in the land, you're going to have all of these blessings. Things are going to be sowing, going so good for you that you will be tempted to forget God who gave you those blessings. You'll begin acting on your own. You'll turn away from God and cease clinging to him. And you know what? When you read uh, through Joshua, that's exactly what happened. Ultimately climaxing in, in Judges. Have you read the book of Judges? That's a dark book. There's almost no good news in Judges. Which is why in the Hebrew canon, you were always to read the book of Ruth with the book of Judges. Because in the midst of this downward spiral where Israel continues to get worse and worse and forget more and more, in the midst of that, he reminds us that God was still at work even in the life of a Moabite girl named Ruth. Interesting. Problem spiritual amnesia, which is forgetting who God is 
and what God has done. Now turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. An unmistaken parallel needs to be made. These principles are not merely Old Covenant and Old Testament principles. 1 Corinthians 11, we find the instruction about the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, communion in verse 23. Paul said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in, what's the word? What's the word? Remembrance of me. Why would Jesus say that? He goes on. In the same way he took the cup after supper and said, this is the new covenant in my blood, the new promise. Do this as often as you drink it. Do it in remembrance of me. Twice. Both elements are to be done to remember Christ. Now think about this logically. Why would Jesus institute an ordinance to remember him? Because he knew we would forget. If we were not susceptible to spiritual amnesia, there would be no need for communion. Do this, one primary reason Jesus says, do this to remember me. Said another way, do this because it's easy to forget me. Now, I know what you're saying. We would never forget the Lord. We would never forget Jesus. Every time we sin, we're forgetting Christ. Every time we sin, we're forgetting the cross. Or at least purposefully elbowing, out of our, elbowing it out of our focus. But he goes on. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You talk about the cross. You remember the death. You, you understand that there was a substitutionary atonement made for our sins. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Well, how can we avoid that? How can we avoid mocking the blood of Christ on the cross and celebrating communion? He tells us, verse 28, but a man must do what? Examine himself. And in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. These are the two principles that are spoken of in Deuteronomy. Remembering and repenting. Remembering who Christ is, what he's done for us on the cross in New Testament terms. Examining ourselves or watching ourselves in Deuteronomy. Then he goes on, as we've talked about before. He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. If he does not judge the body rightly, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number are dead, they sleep. That's how serious God is about spiritual amnesia. So what's the takeaway from this passage? What's the takeaway from Deuteronomy and and 1 Corinthians linked together, which I think they should be? Watching yourself, remembering, not committing spiritual amnesia. Let me give you a few takeaways. First of all, you can't remember what you don't know. Yes, this is the read the Bible more sermon. You can't remember what you don't know. 
How can we remember who God is unless we're reading his word? What God has done unless we're reading the text? How can we remember what we don't know? And yet we are going to be held accountable for every word in this book. Wouldn't it be a good idea to know the standard by which God is going to evaluate our lives? What are we doing? What are you doing to inform your mind and your heart with spiritual truth? Bible reading, reading books, interaction, care groups, small groups, informally going to Starbucks, wherever you go to talk about the things of the Lord. Another takeaway, are you watching yourself? Watching yourself in Deuteronomy 6 is the equivalent of examining yourself in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, here's the, here's the, the pattern and the paradigm. Uh, communion is to be a snapshot of what should be happening all throughout the day and week, which is remembering Christ and examining ourselves. Remembering and repentance. That's the pattern for spiritual growth. In Deuteronomy's terms, it's watch yourself so that you don't forget. Now, at the risk of sounding silly, you understand the old principle, uh, maybe you've done it before, you, you, you tie a string around your finger to remember something, Right? I guess now you put a reminder on your iPhone, whatever you do to remember things. We do that because we're afraid we'll forget something important, don't we? Is there anything more important than remembering the Lord? Does he show up on our calendars? I mean, if you were to look at your calendar, if you have it on your little Galaxy or iPhone or whatever, your day timer, your day planner, whatever it is, if I have an appointment with Bob or Aaron through the week, that'll show up. What if I had an appointment on there that said, God, do you have reminders to meet with God? It sounds silly. This is exactly what Israel was guilty of, exactly what Paul was encouraging the Corinthians not to be guilty of. Do you remember? Do you have things in your life that point you back to spiritual remembrance? Note cards in your car, uh, 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 chalkboards in your house, whiteboards around, scripture hanging here and there. Do you have reminders of that which is easy to forget? So simple. Are we watching ourselves? Are we aware of the attacks of the enemy? Are we aware of our inclination to be spiritual forgetters? Another question. Is prosperity working for or against your spiritual health? Is prosperity working for or against your spiritual health? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, I'm not prosperous, so that's not a problem. He's prosperous, she's prosperous, but I am not prosperous. Let's evaluate that from a Western American perspective, okay? Jesus said... In Matthew 6, if you know where your next meal is coming from, you have more than one thing to wear, and you know where you're sleeping tonight, if you have more than those three things, biblically, you qualify as being, drumroll, wealthy. Isn't that amazing? That's us. That's all of us. Think, think about the context in which Jesus was speaking. He pr- taught the disciples to pray, and he said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
kingdom come, the will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's he say next? Give us what? This day, something to eat. Have you ever, maybe you have, have you ever prayed that in your life? God, if you don't give me something to eat today, I will likely starve. Have you ever prayed that God would give you food because you were so destitute? Now, that may be the case. It may be a, an issue where that's happened. I'm not doubting that. Jesus said, do that daily, which means he was talking to people who would soon be in a persecuted situation where they would wonder if they were going to eat that day. What I'm saying is you're all rich. Biblically, you're all rich. You're wealthy. You have way more than Jesus had, way more than the disciples had, way more than the first century church had. Most of those people were on the run for their lives because they were Christians. We meet in a beautiful building. We have good, comfortable chairs. We have no one knocking at the door saying, is there a Christian there? If so, I'm going to take you to prison and it might cost you your life. We are so blessed. And the point here in Deuteronomy 6 is that. Has prosperity prospered our souls. Now here's the interesting footnote. Nowhere does it say in the Bible that being wealthy, as all of us qualify biblically of being, is a problem or a sin. But it is, does say that it can present special problems. You've probably memorized it wrong like I did when I was a kid. Money is not the root of all evil. I memorized it. Money is the root of all evil. It's not, is it? What is it? The love of money is the root of all evil. James 1 says, it's tough to be a rich man, which all of us are, because you have unique and special temptations. Guard yourself from thinking, ah, those wealthy people. Listen, folks, we are all extremely wealthy from a biblical standpoint. Is your prosperity then working for you or against your spiritual health? Said another way, how's your want-ometer? What do you want? Why do you want it? Do you think if you get it, it'll make you happy? We all do. That's why we want things. There's nothing wrong with having things and enjoying them to the glory of God. But being on that treadmill of always wanting something else, thinking it will finally bring us happiness, folks, it won't. Your own experience proves that out, doesn't it? Last parallel I would make is this. God said, Don't forget to the children of Israel that I brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now, what's interesting, if you look at the rest of the Old Testament, and if you look at Jesus' use of the Exodus, Paul's use of the Exodus, it's almost universally used as an analogy of salvation by Christ. The parallel is simple. Don't forget that God saved the children of Israel 
the people of Israel, the nation of Israel from Egypt and gave them the promised land. The parallel is don't, parallel is, don't forget that God has saved us from sin and Satan and self and hell and delivered us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Why does he say that? Because we are all tempted and susceptible to forgetting that. That's why we sin. Because the gospel on the cross is not in the front part of our mind. Now, I know what you're thinking. Hopefully, it's exactly what I'm thinking. That's hard to do. I mean, there's only so many times you can see him pictured on the cross in your imagination. That's why we have the whole New Testament, which takes the gospel and takes the cross, and it looks at it from 10,000 different angles to give us precious realities that feed our infatuation with it, our fascination of it, our amazement by it. The cross is amazing, and God calls us to be amazed. If we're not amazed, it's, because, it's not because it's not amazing. It's because we haven't stopped and grabbed our soul to put it in a position to see our great need before God for the cross and the power of that reality in our life to live and obey, which is exactly what Deuteronomy 4 says was the warning. If you forget, you're going to disobey. If you find yourself in a pattern of disobedience, battling with a sin that's just almost too hard to, to knock, to get traction with. It's almost sure it's because we've forgotten who Christ is and what Christ has done. Throw yourself back to the cross. Sing songs about the cross. Think about it. Listen to sermons. Read books. Get your mind in the Gospels. Put your face in God's Word. But know this, that you and I are on a constant drift away from the memory of God. Spiritual amnesia is real. It's real in my life. I know it's real in yours. If we try to do this ourselves, I think we'll be moderately successful. But if we're a church that is so committed to one another that we're moving each other to remember, do you remember? Will you remember? Can we remember together? I don't think there's any end to what God can do in our church. Let's pray. Father, I'm a forgetful believer. I am so forgetful. The realities of your word are so vivid and real and walking in living color when I'm reading it and I can walk away so easily five minutes later and not remember what I've read. Singing songs that mean so much to me in the chairs in this church and not taking them out of the building. Lord, you've instituted your, your communion, your Lord's Supper, so that we could have markers in our life to watch ourselves, to remember and examine our, uh, uh, the cross and examine ourselves. So help us to use that, not only as markers, but to use that as a pattern for how we should live our days in loving remembrance of who you are and what you've done and in careful, watchful examination of our lives. 
and use us with one another to be reminders of your greatness. Before we close, I want to ask you very simply again, do you know the Savior? Do you can't remember what you don't know. Is he Lord? Is he precious to you? Peter says, to those who believe, Jesus is precious. If not, don't leave tonight without talking to me, talking to someone, about giving your life to the one who gave his life for you. Giving all you know of yourself to all you know of Christ. Lord, dismiss us now into a very cold week with very warm hearts about gospel truth. We pray this because of your Son. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.